Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Clubhouse Talk. This is your post-college football playoff reveal episode. This episode will be very heavy college football. Um, There's a lot to unpack here as the coaching carousel continues to be stupidly wild and going round and round. Um, And then, like I just said, the, the playoff rankings were released. So we have results to talk about from the championship weekend and those top four teams and those semifinal matchups to, to dig into. So without further ado, we'll, we'll go ahead and jump in. And we're here with our normal co-host, Joe. How are you doing tonight? Doing good. Coming off the heels of an exciting championship weekend in college football. And uh, we got some of the bowl games laid out in front of us that we're going to talk about for a bit. And I'm, I'm excited. I think it's going to be a, a, a different year than we've seen the last you know five or six. So always good to mix it up yeah it was it was one of those things going into last weekend that there seemed to be four or five different I would say major chaos type uh potential options going into the games and I would say about the least uh chaotic way of games you know kind of working their way out is exactly what happened in terms of it was the easiest decision the playoff committee has probably ever had in the, I think this is the fifth year or sixth year or something of the playoff. Um, I can't remember an easier one for them of choosing top four teams. It was pretty clear cut and dry, but yeah, with, with Alabama knocking off Georgia, it made the SEC have two teams. And then you had Oklahoma state losing to Baylor. Uh, Cincinnati did not slip up. Uh, they went undefeated. They got their way in at, at um, the four spot. And then you had Michigan cruise to a huge victory over Iowa. So it was pretty, like I said, pretty clear cut and dry. I think uh, everyone knew going into Sunday. Yeah, I, I agree. Honestly, I think the scenario where it would have gotten a little messy is if um, Bama would have lost that game, which we'll talk about further because, you know, Oklahoma state loses who had they beat Baylor, that would have been the obvious one to step in at the four spot. Um, then you would have been tried with, you know, Notre Dame without a head coach, which they do now have their head coach, um, you know, and then Ohio State behind them. So that that's where it would have been kind of a mess. But I think with Georgia losing that game, Georgia was, like we were saying, playing with house money. They could have lost that game by 100 and still gotten in. And then Cincinnati – becoming the first non-Power 5 team to get in. So that's a, a pretty cool feat in itself, definitely deserving. And then Michigan winning the Big Ten um, in pretty dominant fashion, obviously deserving of a spot as well. I was – there were a few different results and things over the weekend that, that caught my eye and attention. I mean, with Cincinnati, it's not just them making it. I mean, even if you listen to, like, their quarterback, Des Ritter, was in an interview, I believe it was on Sunday on the selection show, and – were asking about it and he said you know when you said set forth at the beginning of the season you talk about winning championships which for a team like Cincinnati he admitted is winning conference championships you don't really have the big picture of a national championship so to have the ability to try and win one is a really cool and special thing for this team um I think they're absolutely deserving of it over the I, I know it's really supposed to be a one-year type resume but especially with what they did last year it makes it even more impressive and um and, and really cool to see. So I'm happy to see them get in. Obviously, the Bama-Georgia game was quite surprising, um, which I want to delve into big time here in a second. And then on the Michigan side, 
it was really impressive, I think, to see them win in the fashion that they did, only because that Ohio State win was such an emotional uh, game for them. It, it's really hard to come back from a huge type of win. And you saw with Oklahoma State, they finally knock up Oklahoma and they looked kind of, you know, a little bit sluggish to start that game against Baylor. And Michigan had none of that. Yeah. No, Michigan was full throttle. Um, they, Iowa stuck with them kind of till late second quarter, I would say. And then it just got blown wide open. Um, I, I was kind of like you and, that I thought that Michigan was either going to not play a very good game or lose that game. I, I didn't think there was any chance of them beating him 42 to three, but they did. And they've proved that they're deserving of, of more just because they beat Ohio state. Um, but yeah, I mean, back to that point, the, the Cincinnati naysayers will, I'm sure, unless they go on to win this thing, which I think the odds are kind of insurmountable almost, but I mean, it would, it would be cool to see, to be honest. I think it would be one of the most incredible stories in all sports if Cincinnati wins the national championship, but the naysayers will, will have their, their piece. But I, I honestly would be, if I was an Alabama player, I would be a little tense to play Cincinnati uh, because that that's one of those like David and Goliath things that they're good enough to be dangerous but also not good enough where Alabama should beat them, I think, pretty handedly. Um, so I think it's honestly, it's if, if they can get those, that team in the right mindset under Luke Fickle, which he's a phenomenal coach, I imagine he will, you know, playing fast and loose and kind of just going out there with nothing to lose, that, that could be a, a dangerous team. Kind of similar to how Ohio State was, I think, at the first national championship or first college football playoff when they had, Cardale Jones and nobody expected him to win with third string quarterback. And they kind of just went out there and just bombed it all over the field. If it wasn't a month in between game or the whole month of December to prepare for a team, I would give Cincinnati a lot better chance. I think giving Nick Saban a month to prepare for a team is a really, really hard feat to go out and beat him on, on a versus a week mm-hmm. basis. Um, but I will say that Cincinnati has a much better quarterback than what Alabama just faced in Georgia. And they've got better corners as well. So I, I'm not saying it's going to be impossible. I think the line that Vegas said it was at 14 and a half. I, I would tell you I wouldn't be surprised if I saw it be a seven-point game in the fourth quarter. And I also could tell you I wouldn't be that surprised if they won by 21 and Bama's talent just kind of took over. Because I'll say this, the Bama team that we saw play UGA is a team that we have not seen that Bama team this entire year. And it's kind of what you expect from Bama. And so it's one of those things where is has this Bama team finally matured and turned the corner? Or is that just an all-time top performance for this team? And that's their ceiling. So if it's the all-time top performance and they play more to what they did the rest of the regular season, Cincinnati absolutely has a chance. But if they play like they did against Georgia, no, there, there's zero percent chances in the next four quarters. Maybe, maybe two, maybe three, but not for all four quarters. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. I, I would pretty much just echo everything you said there. I think, like we mentioned, or I mentioned last week, as long as Bama has Nick Saban, I think they're the team to beat. But, um, you know, it, it's going to be hard to beat a fully prepared Alabama team that's going to be rested and ready, and um, you know, kind of been hearing that they're not 
the normal Bama team all year. And normally Bama doesn't have a chip on their shoulder. And this year they're they've they've been given one. one. Yeah. yeah, they've been given one the whole year. And now look at where it's got us in the number one seed, um, which I, I guess it makes sense. I think that they did it the right way because you can't have well, you can, but probably don't want to have an SEC championship game rematch in the first round of the semifinals. Um, but I think that there is a very fair argument that Michigan's resume was better than Alabama's resume. It could have been the number one team and let Alabama be two. And I only say that in that Michigan has multiple top wins. They are clearly playing the best football of any team in the country right now. And their one loss is better than Alabama's one loss. Michigan State's ranked higher than Texas A&M, both of them on the road. And I think if you watch that Michigan State game, there was no doubt in your mind that Michigan was the better team, that, but that Michigan State came back and won the game. But Michigan overall was the better team in the game. So it's an interesting concept. I'm not upset with it. I just I think that there could have been made an argument if you were willing to do the rematch in the semifinal. There could have. And again, that's where it goes back to this debate of the subjectiveness of the college football playoff, because I, I think there's no debate really that if you go just on rankings of record and wins, then Michigan would probably be the one, but I do think they definitely factored in that they don't want Bama Georgia rematch right off the draw. I don't think that's good for the viewership of it. And I think honestly, it, it, it just sort of, ostracizes more than half of the country yeah. watching one game, um, which they, they certainly don't want that either. So I think they did the right thing. And they, you know, you can kind of justify it in the sense that Georgia had been the best team in the country this whole season and they knocked off the best team. So jump them in the first. Why not? Yeah. I mean, I, I get it on both sides. Both sides have a very fair argument. I'm just saying that if there are Michigan fans out there or people that, that want to back Michigan saying that they should have been the number one team. I think that there is a very true and realistic argument that I 100% hear and understand. If I, yeah, if I was a Michigan fan, I'd be upset. I genuinely would, because you go from playing Cincinnati to playing Georgia. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's it's a, a very – yeah, it's a huge difference. <laughs> I mean, there is a – if there's a team that you don't want to play, it's Georgia. I mean, yes, they had their bad game, but like you said, for 12 weeks of the year, they were – absolutely dominant and clearly the number one team in the country. So it's a much, much harder draw from that side of the, that side of the bracket. And frankly, from a matchup perspective, Michigan loves to run the ball. And, you know, Michigan's got a really good offensive line that, you know, Hassan Haskins is a phenomenal running back, but Georgia's front seven is still probably the best that I've seen in a very long time. Um, Nick Saban then, knew he couldn't run on him in the SEC championship game. He didn't even try. He didn't even try, yeah. He full-blown just abandoned the run and was like, we're going to throw it around on you because we know your quarters is the only chance we have to score. And it worked because their offensive line held up and Georgia didn't get to sack Bryce Young. But other than that, they didn't even bother to try to run the game, run the ball. So I don't know where Michigan's going to be able to drive the ball unless they start getting creative, which they did in the Iowa game. They started busting off some big plays. So they're going to have to get extremely creative with this offense in the next three weeks as they try to prepare for Georgia because they will not be able to run the ball up the middle in Jordan Davis. It will get swamped every single play, and they'll gain two yards and go three and out, and that'll be the end of it. Yeah, and 
And frankly, Michigan was able to beat Ohio State and control that game because Ohio State's run defense was so weak. So I think it's it'll be interesting to see how they adjust because I I think that's definitely the strength of their game is their ability to run and slow down the clock and then be advantageous where they can. But um, I think I think they'll have their hands full. I think it's fascinating that they're going to be the two seed and probably I, I didn't see the opening line. You may have, but seven and a half to Georgia. So yeah. Um, and not be favored to win. I think it's just yeah. kind of the, the dichotomies of the college football playoff. It's pretty pretty crazy that you sit there and you're like, well, you know, they're they're ranked lower, and yet they're going. You look at them, and the the Vegas the Vegas people are the ones who, honestly, if you want to get people that'll that'll create a the most accurate fourteen playoff, give it to Vegas. They'll tell you who the best fourteen are. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It won't be subjective. They they will be able to get that right and. And, you know, going back to the Alabama-Cincinnati and a lot of the naysayers, there are people every year that complain about how bad the playoffs are in terms of the semifinals or blowouts. I would be shocked if the Michigan-Georgia game is a blowout for one. And and you know what? Even if the Cincinnati game turns into a blowout and they lose by 21, it's been no different than any other team. It's been no different than, you know, Notre Dame's gotten blown out a couple times. Bama got blew out by Ohio State. Clemson. Clemson got blown out last year. Michigan State got flamed one year. Yeah, and so like this has happened. Ohio State, I think, got flamed one year. Ohio State got smoked one year. So I mean, like these have happened consistently in the semis. So I just don't, I don't see the difference. And if you throw in, you could have thrown in Notre Dame. They were the five. Um, and then I try to think of who moved all the way. I think Ohio State was six. So if you put in Notre Dame or Cincinnati, I don't think. It, Cincinnati is a better team. I'm just saying, like, well, Cincinnati beat Notre. I think it's just it's interchangeable at that point. There wasn't a good enough fifth team um, to really be able to make an argument for it. Yeah, and so if a blowout happens, it happens. But I don't think that goes against the case of why Cincinnati should be the number four team. Notre Dame was clearly the number four team last year, and guess what? They got blown out by Clemson. But it is what it is. I mean, just because you're the number four, sometimes there's a gap between the number one and number four. And I think this year there probably is a gap. But once again, it's college football, and Bama has looked mortal in other games, i.e. Auburn, A&M, Florida. They've, they've looked very mortal in those games. So if Cincinnati can go out there and do what those teams did to them, and they can get this to be a fourth-quarter game, then anything can possibly happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I think Cincinnati is probably better than – all the teams you just listed that gave them a game. Yeah. I would, I would say so at least. Um, so we'll see. I mean, you never know what can really happen. That's um, you still got to play the game. Did Georgia lose the SEC championship and potentially a national championship because they were playing Stetson Bennett? I'm not saying just for that one game, but because they haven't brought in JT Daniels since he became healthy three or four weeks ago. Yeah, honestly, I think so. I don't, I don't think that he's a guy who can win you a championship game. And I think for what I don't understand, honestly, like Kirby Smart's eye for quarterback talent, because this isn't like the first instance of it. I mean, going back to, he had Jacob and Justin Fields and Jake Fromm all in the same quarterback room. And he goes with Jake Fromm, who is, frankly, far and away worse than all, all out of the three. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, fast forward, I guess, three years, 
he's got one of the, probably one of the better arm talents in college football and JT Daniels. Sure. You know, a little less mobility. He likes to kind of sling it around a little bit more. And then you got a guy who's a walk-on. I mean, Stenson Bennett's a great story. Don't get me wrong, but the reality of it is he doesn't have the arm strength to throw the ball outside the numbers. I think what it comes down to is Kirby wants to control the game so much that he's terrified to have a quarterback who's going to go in there and improvise. And I think it, it handicaps their ability to make big plays and to go out there and win offensively. And I think it, it could honestly be the downfall of what is otherwise a ridiculously good football team. I mean, go, looking at the comparison that you made of what was that three or four years ago, I mean, you had Jacob Eason, who's a lot like a JT Daniels, and that the guy just had an absolute cannon of an arm. The guy threw a cross field 50 or 55, 60 yard bomb outside the numbers on a dime, like on a frozen rope before. Mm-hmm. You've got Justin Fields, who's an incredible talent when it comes to it. I mean, I know he hasn't played that great for the Bears so far, but you saw what he did at Ohio State of running around, creating stuff, also has a really, really solid arm. And then you had Jake Fromm, who was a lot like a Stetson Bennett, a little bit better than Stetson Bennett, better arm, but the same kind of arm talent and just game manager type of person, an A.J. McCarron-style quarterback of someone that, all right, He's probably going to go out there and throw 15 of 20 for 200 yards and two touchdowns. He's not going to in no picks. And so I think you're right. I think that he is genuinely scared that his quarterback, whether it be okay that he might win, make some more plays because of his talent, he is genuinely very scared about that quarterback throwing interception or making a mistake at the wrong time to lose him a game. And that's no way to coach when you are trying to win a national championship is coaching scare. You can't do it and expect to win. No. And it's just, it's, it's shocking to me, really. I mean, if you watch that game, which I'm assuming most of the people listening did, it felt like every pass play that Georgia did was a throw to Bowers or tight end up the seam. And that was the only way that they were able to get any kind of yardage in the air, other than like check down or, little like bubble screen deals. Like he, he couldn't, he couldn't hit any of their receivers out. They just got their best receiver and pickings back from last year when he tore his ACL. It, and then as the game went on, it was pretty evident that Stetson Bennett wasn't going to have a good day. I think he, what was it? Three interceptions he finished with on, the, on yeah. the day. Why not when it seems insurmountable, don't you put JT Daniels in and see if you can find something. And if nothing else, get him some reps if you decide to go that route for the college football playoff, because he's, he's not your guy. He's not, he might not even be able to score on Michigan who has a very good defense. I mean, they held Ohio state to 28 points that had probably the best offense of the year. So that's not a team that they're going to be able to move the ball on very easily as is. And then let's say they get through them and then seemingly will play Bama. Saban knows exactly what to expect again. Because you can change the schematics, but you're not going to be able to change the quarterback's talent over the course of a month. And he just doesn't have the talent, I think, to do it. It was one of those things where during, like, watching the game, I, I know we were watching it together. It was just, it was extremely evident that once, once Bama started to kind of take control and they got ahead, that there was zero chance that Georgia was going to be able to come back because of who they had under center at Stetson Bennett. 
he's not a terrible person, but he's not someone that's going to come back from 14 down and win you a game. And so I don't even, and that's not even the point of when you want to put JT Daniels in, because at that point the game was lost and JT Daniels hasn't played the entire year since the very first game against Clemson. And so like, yes, you're not really losing anything, but I don't think you're going to get the full maximum value that you would get out of the talent of a JT Daniels just because he hasn't been playing. So I go back to when he was fully cleared from this oblique injury, um, when Georgia was rolling in the middle of the season, that that's when they should have been playing JT Daniels week over week, because even if he made some mistakes, newsflash, I don't think Georgia was going to lose any game anyways throughout the year. Their hardest game after looking back at their season, their hardest games going down the stretch of when he got cleared were probably, I can't remember exactly what week it was, but there was a Kentucky game, which Georgia's defense completely stifled them. Florida, Georgia's defense completely stifled them. And Tennessee, who couldn't put up enough points to be able to keep up with it, and their defense really wasn't good enough to stop anybody. They couldn't stop Seth Bennett, so they weren't going to definitely, we're not going to stop J.D. Daniels. And so they should have been playing him all of these weeks to get him prepared for this moment. And maybe there's enough time in the next three and a half weeks to to get J.T. Daniels up to speed. But I don't see any way that they win a national championship with Stetson Bennett because I don't think that against elite level talent, you can game manage and dominate on defense and beat these type of teams in this type of format the way you want to do it. They're, they're just too good of teams to be able to do. No, and, and it's, this has been the only issue that we've talked about Georgia all year long is that if their defense – waivers and they can't hold teams the way they did all season long they have enough points to win and the sec championship showed that they just don't have the offensive firepower to keep up with a team like alabama if that if it becomes a shootout yeah i mean bama give them credit fantastic scheme nick saban once again proved how ridiculously good of a coach that he is because i'll tell you what georgia has more talent on the team they are a better team and they have more talent. And Nick Saban just absolutely outschooled and outcoached Kirby Smart in that game. And it's why they won. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So I want to I want to dive into this Kirby thing a little bit more. The fourth down call. <laughs> Is that a panic call? When you're down, are you, are you talking about when they're down 14 at the beginning of the fourth and it was like fourth and 10? Yes. Yeah. When they're in the, on the Alabama side of the field or yeah, no, they were on their own, like they were on like the 20 yard line. So it was pretty well a chip chop field goal. It was 100% a panic call. And what made it even worse was that they didn't have the play call ready to go. So so here's what I say. On third down, if you're thinking it's four down territory, you are not passing the ball to the sticks on that play. You are running the ball and you are trying to get three or four or five yards or whatever you can get out of it or a screen or something that you think is going to get you positive yardage to make it shorter than fourth and ten. So if, if on third down you have already made up your mind or in that drive you get past the 50 and you say, look, I feel like we have to get touchdowns, you have to be calling every single set of downs at that point to prepping to go forward on fourth down and make it the most manageable fourth down play you can have. And then on the flip side is once it is fourth and 10, there is no reason that you should, one, be trying to rush in a play call that you clearly wasn't ready for. They snapped the ball with one second. And nobody was really set. Bama just sends the house. They send, I think, nine guys, and you can't block them all. And sense of bad, it just has to throw the ball away. And so at that point, you call a timeout and save it 
you save the play call and at least get the right play call in there. Or three, you just give up and you make not give up the game, but you give up the drive and you understand that just kick your field goal, go down 10. Cause at that point you get a stop, you get another touchdown, you're down three points. And then all you have to do is get, get to field goal range, which the way you were going that day, you weren't driving very well on Bama to begin with. So what makes you think that you're going to be able to go down and score two more touchdowns versus just getting in a field goal range one more time and a touchdown? Yeah, I don't know. I, I was shocked watching it. It it was eerily similar to the fake was it fake punt? Fake punt, yeah. Yeah. In eight, eighteen or seventeen or whatever, I don't know what year it was, but yeah, when uh George when he did that fake punt and just got smoked on it. I think it was like a fourth and eight, and Bama was in punt safe and he calls a fake punt and it gets stuffed easily. Like everyone in the world knew a fake punt was coming and yet he still kept it on. Yeah, uh, it just it goes back to can Kirby Smart coach and win a big game, and I'm I'm yet to be proved that he can. You know, at the beginning of the year, we said that going all the way back to that first game against Clemson, because at the time here it was a number one versus or number I think it was number two with number five or something like that going into that game, um, and we were like, can Kirby? actually win a big game and can he coach up a big game against Dabo and they won the game and at that moment we were like okay Kirby has figured it out he's understood how to coach these big games and he got that monkey off his back now looking back at that game that is nowhere near as impressive of a victory as it looked at the moment and I don't think we really ever came back to it of like hey Kirby that, that game wasn't that impressive. I mean, Clemson wasn't a very good team for a long time, especially early in the year. Yeah, they shut them out, but they also only put up 10 points. And so it, it was, or I think they won 10 to three maybe or something like that. So it was like, he didn't give that, that, uh, that greater performance. And so here we are again at the end of the year. And it's like, he really still hasn't won that big game against a top team in the moment. No, he hasn't. And I mean, yeah, he, he beat the worst Clemson team in probably close to a decade. And, and the only reason they didn't, didn't even do it back Vincent. Yeah, they won off a pick six. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. I mean, what's his what's his marquee win? It's the Clemson game. That is his marquee win. That or, That's not great. That he or it's when he turned around. That or turning around and smoking an Auburn team in 2017 in the SEC championship game, but they had just lost their best player in Tink Bigsby right before the game. So you lose, or uh, or maybe it wasn't this, not Tink Bigsby, but whoever it was that year. Um, uh, I, I, yeah. Was it carry on Running back to the Lions. Yeah, carry on Johnson. That's who it was. Yeah. He like tore, his, he tore something in his leg like the last game of the year and didn't get to play and they had no offense. Like that is his most impressive win because they just got smoked a few weeks prior. So those are his marquee wins at this moment. Mm-hmm. Great. No, and neither neither one of them are that impressive. And it's it's just crazy because you fired Mark Rick for this because he couldn't win a big game. And here you are with Kirby Smart, who is a much better recruiter, I will give you that, and he still hasn't figured out how to do the big game job. And until he does, I, I genuinely think Georgia will fire Kirby if he continues to do this seven years. Because I think you have to. I think if you look at, I mean, if you look at his resume, 
the, the East has not been good since Kirby Smart's been there as a whole, I would say. No. I, I would say there's been some good Florida teams that have popped up. Um, that's Kentucky's it. emerged a little bit, uh, but still nothing in comparison to what the West is facing. And so he's run roughshod over a battered East and lost in the SEC championship fairly consistently. Yeah. I mean, what, I mean, what is so, what are you really holding on there? What couldn't 90% of other, you know, qualified coaches do better or do the same, I'd say? Any coach that is as hungry of a recruiter as Kirby is can do exactly what Kirby is doing in the recruit, on the recruiting trail just because it's that easy in the state of Georgia. It's such a fertile recruiting ground, and you have no in-state competition because the only other big school is Georgia Tech, and it is infinitely easier to get people to go to Georgia than to go to Georgia Tech. Yeah, I would say that's a pretty fair assessment. So – there are a lot of maybe they won't be able to go nationally the way Kirby has been able to, but you definitely would be able to just rack it up, you know, in your region right there. So I, I, I think I agree with you that Kirby's got to figure this out in the next, I'd say probably not next year, it, no matter what happens this year, if it happens again the following year and he goes through this with a great team and gets to the end of the year and can't win a big game. You look at that 2023 season and his seat will be hot that entire year to win a big game. I think it has to, because I think what Georgia doesn't want to be a program to just, that's, you know, settling for winning division titles anymore. I think they've done that for 20 years now. And I think they're ready to take the next leap. And I mean, there's, they're sick and they're tired of waiting. The last national championship for them was 1985. And they've had a lot of really good teams since 1985. Really good teams. Anything. Mm-hmm. anything of note so it will be extremely interesting to see what happens if kirby's kirby smart has a chance to redeem himself obviously um beating michigan and he kind of has a chance to reverse fortune on on himself in 2017 when they lost to alabama uh or when they beat or you know they won the sec championship and then they lose to bama in the finals um and so he kind of has a little bit of chance to flip fortune on that and if he does then all of this conversation that we've just had for the last 15 minutes or whatever on Kirby Smart is completely mute and dead. But right now I have no reason to think that anything is going to change because Kirby has has shown so far he's too stubborn to change his mindset and too scared to change. I'm with you. I agree. Um, moving on from that, because I, I think that kind of <laughs> covers covers that topic as best we can. Looking back at the Heisman, um, looks like Bryce Young has clearly solidified his uh, Heisman Trophy victory after his, I will say, absolutely fantastic performance. He played flawless in the SEC championship game. But once again, I, I know we talked about this last week. Bryce Young should not win the Heisman this year. He's not even the best player on Alabama's football team, but yet he will win the Heisman because there are too many Heisman voters out there that don't know how to watch a football game to find out who the best player is. Uh, And I agree. And I think it's getting to the point where I think there was kind of like a balance where nobody wanted a defensive player to win because they weren't like as prominent enough on the field. And it made sense to have a quarterback, but I think it's gotten to the point where enough people that are, you know, avid college football fans are watching it and going like, why is it always the same thing every year? I mean, 
like last year, it, it was honestly absurd that it was such a heated debate as it was for Devontae Smith to win the Heisman. <laughs> like that, that was that was ridiculous to me just because he played receiver, not quarterback. And there's nothing against Mac Jones. Devontae Smith was just that good. And it's it's kind of ridiculous to the point that like all the people who do the polling and stuff were like digging for candidates this year. And they settled pretty much for the starting quarterback at Alabama, which is pretty much the least critical or least critique person you could possibly get because nobody's going to say the starting quarterback at Alabama is a bad football player and the starting quarterback for Ohio state. So you have these two elite programs and you just pick off their starting quarterbacks. Yeah. And then whichever one plays better and takes your team further in the area and boom, you have your Heisman trophy winner. Yeah. there's just way too many people that follow that mindset and they're okay with it. And I think that's, that is the biggest issue is that there are too many people that are going to be okay with this are going to be happy and they're going to say Bryce Young deserves it or whatever. But if you took Bryce Young off of that football team, I don't know who their backup is, but I'm telling you that Will Anderson is a better football player on that team and means more to that team than what Bryce Young does on offense. And I absolutely agree. I, I think it's – there just needs to be some sort of rebranding done for the Heisman. Like, they need to truly, truthfully make it the best player in college football again. Well, I don't even, I don't even know if I can say again because I don't know if it really ever was. But either that or make it a quarterback award at this point because that, that's really what it has been, it, it feels like. I mean, it's so frustrating. There is a quarterback award. There is a best quarterback award. So why do we have to have two? Yep, and that—that's what's frustrating. It's either been an Alabama running back or like an Oklahoma quarterback for like the last eight years. It's—it's absolutely absurd. I hate it. Um, I can go on a soapbox about this for forever, but clearly nothing's going to change until. I think the only way that you can ever get this change is to completely revamp who gets Heisman votes, which you'll never do because there's too much of this legacy gap of hey, I'm a Heisman voter and you get to do it year over year. Um, until that changes or you just meet out these people and you get a whole lot more informed voters, it will never change. It'll continue to be the best offensive player, most likely quarterback on the best team, you know, best quarterback on the best uh, playoff team. So that's what it's been. I think all sports awards in general should be gutted and the only people voting on the award should be the people who have received it in the past because those will be the people who are most willing to vote somebody into kind of their you know, I guess quote unquote fraternity of, of fellow athletes because the Heisman trophy winners aren't going to vote in somebody that they don't think is deserving of the Heisman. Yeah. Same, you could say the same about the NFL MVP or the NBA MVP. Like, why do we need 500 people voting on these things? <laughs> why not 15? They'll still come up with the same result, probably. Yeah, it's gonna, it's, it's, it's gonna be the same mass. I mean, it's you know, the odds of that being a different result from the 15 to the 500 is pretty small. Yeah, and I think everybody would rest easier at night knowing that you know, Eddie George and you know, Kyler Murray are voting on who's the best football talent versus, you know, whoever even is voting in for the Heisman now. Yeah. It's just my two cents there. No, I mean, I, I agree with you that there's, there's a lot that needs to be changed across the board. 
Um, baseball's tried to go to like a almost an exclusively done off of war, which I think is a very poor idea as well. Um, that you're trying to use one analytic to basically decide who the best player in baseball is. And there's a lot of things in baseball that can't be calculated. So it's just, you've got to just step back and look at this thing from the beginning and just understand of where, what the situation is and that every year it's always going to be a different situation because it's a brand new season and just start with a clean slate and just watch it for what is supposed to be the most outstanding player. Um, it won't be it. Like I said, Bryce Young's going to walk away with it. I am sure of it, but I, I just hope that there's, the only thing that gives me hope is that maybe this year you get a lot of votes for Will Anderson and agent Aiden Hutchinson um, and Jordan Davis and guys like that, that they at least get enough votes that come whenever they release the Heisman Trophy winner. You can see it. Um, you can see those names pop up and maybe just over time, we can start trying to change people's opinions. of like, Oh, well, instead of only five people voting for a defensive player, there were 50 and then maybe there's a hundred and then 200 and it just kind of goes up from there. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, so that pretty well covers most of the college football stuff. And then on the coaching carousel front where we hop out of college football, uh, you mentioned earlier, Notre Dame has their head coach, Marcus Freeman, who was the defensive coordinator under Brian Kelly was promoted to uh, head coach. I, I think a little bit surprising that they didn't want to wait out and talk to a Luke Fickle um, and see what happens after the college football playoffs. There's really no exact rush unless Notre Dame's very scared about losing some players here in the early signing period in a few weeks and trying to do that without a head coach is very difficult. But I, I guess your thoughts and opinions on Marcus Freeman being hired. I, at first I was a little underwhelmed, but the more – um, I've thought about it and the more I've kind of seen what the, the community has, has kind of thought as well. Um, my first thought was the same as yours. It seemed a little quick for no reason, really. But then I realized Notre Dame probably had a really short list, reached out. I'm assuming they reached out to Fickle. I'll, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Or at least his, and, at least they're his agents to, under, yeah. to engage interest. And it was probably something like, you know, maybe, but we're not going to discuss till after the season. Cause I think he, every coach in the country saw the Kelly fallout and, and what he did to his reputation at Notre Dame is completely tarnished forever um, by leaving a team that still could have potentially made the playoffs if Alabama would have lost that game. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, but they were tasked with having to keep two of the most talented coordinators in the country in-house and not following Brian Kelly to LSU. And Marcus Freeman was a guy who's going to be on that list regardless to be interviewed for head coach. And you keep him and you keep Tommy Reese as your offensive coordinator. And as a result, they've kept the locker room. Um, there hasn't been this big rush to the transfer portal for Notre Dame players. And there hasn't been a lot of recruits gone. Um, everybody has said, you know, Marcus is a big team guy. and The players love him. They love playing for him. And the reaction when he got announced to the players was pretty incredible. So um, that that made me feel better about it. And then if you look on merit, um, Notre Dame defensively has been phenomenal since he took over. They've been that has been their primary unit. Uh, the, the offense was decent for Notre Dame last year under Ian Book. Uh, the offense is very serviceable this year, I would say, but their defense has been the 
been the leading drive. And then it's also kind of a risk-free hire because you bring him in there for a year. It's not like Notre Dame is going to go from this hot destination school to nobody wants to coach them if it doesn't work out in two years. So I, I think they, they aren't really risking anything by hiring him. No, you're right. It's not a huge risk. You won't have to pay out the money. I mean, one, you don't have to go pay out the buyout money of another coach. You won't have to then increase a massive salary. I'm sure Marcus Freeman will get a very handsome salary for being the head coach, but it wouldn't be anywhere near what he would have to be paid if they were going to go take a Luke Fickle or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's less of a financial risk. And then I agree that when I when they said it or when they announced it, I was really shocked because, like I said, and like you said, it was very quick. It was it felt rushed that they just wanted to just get somebody in there immediately and, and get a head coach. And then when you like you said, when he was announced to the players and they had I think they released a video of it. of, of They were like in the weight room or wherever mm-hmm. um, they they showed him in. It was at that moment that I was like, this explains why it was so quick and easy easy for him. It wasn't rushed. It was quick and it was easy because that is who the team wanted. I guarantee you they had player after player going to the AD saying, we want Marcus Freeman. This guy can coach us. This guy can get it done. He's an elite recruiter, a great defensive mind, and clearly a big time players coach. And you can't argue if that's who the team wants, you can never argue with that because you know, they're going to go out there and they're going to play their heart out for that guy week after week. Whether he might be the smartest guy or the most elite, you know, coaching talent, I don't know. But he might get more out of his players just by being who he is than if they hired somebody else. Yeah, and the the Notre Dame, a couple of Notre Dame players have a podcast, and one of them being Kyle Hamilton, who was Notre Dame star player before injury this whole season. And they asked him you know, before the hire, they're like, "Who? Like, what do you think? You know." can you give us any insight? And he basically said, he was like, yeah, Marcus is the guy. He was like, Marcus should be the head coach. And then, you know, some character, this is a guy who had his NFL career cut short because he has a medical condition. Like the guy's an absolute competitor. I don't think there's anybody who could be hungrier than having their dreams cut short, you know, for something out of their control. So that, that dude's going to want to win and he knows the culture. He knows the players already. It's going to be a very easy transition because the schemes aren't going to get totally flipped around um, and they're going to keep the majority of the leadership of their team. Cause this wasn't, you know, it's very senior heavy Notre Dame team last year's team was this team isn't. So we'll see. I expect him to have success there. I mean, I'm not saying he'll have the same, you know, the same machine that Brian Kelly had there for 12 years, but I absolutely expect him to have success. Um, especially with the continuity you said, him being a defensive coordinator. Now he doesn't have to worry about getting a new offense scheme in there because he already has the same OC. And then clearly with him being a defensive coordinator, he'll go out and hire somebody that he trusts to be the defensive coordinator to run that defense. And I think as long as he is willing to be, you know, kind of a, more of a general and let, and, you know, less of a micromanager, I think that that will always be successful. For him. So, yeah. And, and we'll see, he, he may, I would imagine, honestly, that he still calls the plays defensively. Uh, I'd be surprised if he didn't. But um, I'm, I'm sure he'll bring either bring somebody up internally to kind of groom them into that role or find somebody to come in. Yeah, or someone that he trusts very well that's been out at another school. Um, yeah, and that remains to be seen. But. Yeah. So I, I was happy to see that. Um, 
Oklahoma today hired their head coach, or I guess it was yesterday, I think. They officially hired Brent Venables, the defensive coordinator from Clemson, who has been, I think, a hot-button coaching uh, candidate for, God, what feels like four or five years probably. (laughs) Um, And the guy has refused to leave Clemson until now. Uh, I I don't know if he feels that this is the right time or if this was just the right job or if they offered him finally enough money to leave or what the deal (laughs) was. But he finally got out from under Dabo's shadow, and we're going to go see – can Brent Venables do this at a big-time program? Yeah, whatever the case may be, this is a huge hire for Oklahoma because Brett Venables is a stud coach. I mean, he's, like you said, been probably the most sought-after assistant uh, in the country and time and time again has turned teams away. So, no, I'm sure, I'm sure it was all the above. He's inheriting a program that's got plenty of talent. Um, it's, and it, I guess – he's up for the challenge of being the one to captain them into the sec. And I'm sure they gave him a nice little check on the side. So it's, uh, it, it's interesting definitely um, that he took that one, but kind of looking back, those other coaching positions the last few years, I think that the Oklahoma one's pretty tasty. That, yeah. He's clearly the best one that I, that he, I mean, you're not going to get many better than Oklahoma, but I mean, if you look at the ones that he's been off for the last few years, nothing has been an, an elite real team. I, I would say probably the Tennessee job last year was about the best one that supposedly he was offered or, or brought into talking for. Yeah. And that, no offense to you or your alma mater, that wasn't oh, exactly no. a, a jump in championship caliber team. <laughs> I'm not going to even come close to trying to say that take the Oklahoma job is uh worse than the Tennessee job it's clearly a, a way better position for him to go to so I understand waiting it out and getting something that he thought he could have success in right away um it, it reminds me a little bit kind of like when Kirby Spark got hired at UGA in terms of a fantastic program um that's already built for success and just kind of needs somebody to push the push them over the top and so having him there I think that he has that ability to to take or to keep Oklahoma at the top and maybe even push them up and over. Uh, it won't be that hard of a adjustment. He doesn't have to build a program as the first time head coach, which is a much, much different prospect than being a successful coordinator going into a um, successful program as a head coach. Also like Ryan day at, at Ohio state, both times coordinators that went into really good situations. Yeah. I think, I think you're exactly right. I think it's um, I think, there's, it could be a little messy in Oklahoma. They probably have to clean up a touch. Um, this was definitely their worst year in the last four or five. But um, he's a very disciplined, intense coach, which I think Oklahoma could probably benefit from a little bit right now um, after kind of the whole Spencer Rattler house of cards that that turned out to be. <laughs> and him, you know, walking off the field, middle of the game, stuff like that. Um, I think – bringing in that, that intense culture could, could benefit them a little bit. And that is a team that has had absolutely no defense for years. So, I'm really curious to see how that works because in a weird way, I feel like Oklahoma's always tried to be that team in the Big 12 that had a defense. And like that was something that they wanted to pride themselves on was, yes, they always had the elite offense under Bob Stoops, but they felt like they wanted to be that team in the Big 12 that could stop them and would have the defense to play with with the big boys. And then they never did. So I wonder if now they're going to actually get that defense under Venables to be able to to compare. But this is a 
it's a huge challenge. I mean, going in the SEC, you're getting thrown right to the wolves. <laughs> there ain't much time to, oh, yeah. to, to ease your way into this. I mean, it, it could literally be as soon as next season. It could be two or three seasons. We'll see. Um, I'm sure Venables would probably love a year or two in the Big 12 before going to the SEC, but I would think so. Uh, no, no guarantees. I, I just can't imagine with how good Clemson's defenses have been under him that they're not at least better. They might not be great just because of the style that you kind of have to play, um, but they'll, I think they'll be good. I think so too. And clear, I hope he's learned a lot under Dabo, um, and I'm sure he has from all the big games, all all the different schemes. tons of experience. Yeah, so he brings a lot of championship experience there. I, I think he will do very well out there. Um, just the biggest question mark, as always, is the guy hasn't hasn't been the head coach before, so it's just mm-hmm. how you handle it. You can't be too much of a micromanager. You got to be able to make your hires and let your team trust it. And there are some names that he's rumored to bring in. Um, supposedly he might get uh, Jeff Levy out of Ole Miss to be his uh, offensive coordinator, which would be a ridiculously good hire um, if that happened. So just just little things like that. If he can put together that coaching staff, he'll get them right. Where, he'll keep them right where Lincoln Riley have them. And I, I think that's honestly the biggest challenge for the guys that haven't been head coaches to take over a new schools. They just don't they don't have their staff already built out. So they got to go around and they got to pick and pry guys from all these different schools and then get something kind of unison out of them. I think that's the difficulty because there's no question he's a great coach. There's no question he's a good leader. His guys always liked playing for him. Um, and he's definitely got the experience. It's, it's can he assemble the team necessary to win? Yeah. Remains to be seen. And then um, I guess that's, that, that was kind of exhausted. And then the last, the last one is uh, Manny Diaz was after probably one of the worst handled coaching searches of all time. Miami, like publicly, for those who didn't follow it, Miami was out there publicly uh, searching for a new head coach while still holding on to Manny Diaz. Basically, they were out there trying to woo Mario Cristobal and said, hey, Mario, if you come here, we'll fire Manny. But if you don't want to come here, we're going to hold on to Manny. I mean, it was just a really nasty situation, and it finally ended today that they gave Cristobal an ultimatum and uh, had a deadline, I think, of like noon today, and Cristobal accepted it this morning. So, Mark Cristobal is coming home to Miami. I believe he played in Miami, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, they're going to have to pay a very massive buyout for him, pay a massive buyout uh, for Manny Diaz, and then they're going to pay him $8 million on top of it. I think it was, I think it, was a, it was a $9 million buyout for Cristobal and an $8 million buyout for Diaz, and they're going to pay Cristobal $8 million. And they better Miami win. has all that money from uh, their health hospital was $400 million in the profit last year from COVID. So they, uh, huh. they, they weren't hurting for the cash. We'll put it that way. Yeah, they better win. Um, because <laughs> I, I mean, I, I talked about this when Alabama played Miami week one this year. It's just like we constantly hype up Miami because of what they were in early 2000, and they're just not that good of a football program anymore. But Mario Cristobal, that's a good hire. He's a really good coach. Oregon was pretty bad before he got there, and uh, they're pretty good, I would say, now. Um, not good enough to beat Utah twice. Twice. Um, but they're, they're good. So we'll see what happens there. 
He's um, been recruiting great out there. He'll get a little bit better talent to recruit. I'd say, in this, you know, they're in South Florida. But clearly it's not going to be easy, although he's getting in there at a pretty decent time in the state of Florida. You've got a brand-new head coach in Billy Napier at Florida, and you've got Florida State who's been down. So you kind of have your three major flagship programs are all down at the same time. So it's easy for one of those to pick it up and, and do well and succeed. It's yeah. just going to be a question of who gets on their feet the quickest. There's no good team in Florida because USF was terrible this year and UCF is it's not good anymore either. Yeah. Like Florida is really, it's five average teams. And it's why you see teams like Georgia, Bama, Clemson, Ohio State, everybody really has just it actually doesn't even matter those power teams like Nebraska, Tennessee. I mean, everybody's just coming down to Florida, just picking whoever the heck they want out of there. Because there's mm-hmm. there's no good teams to keep them home. No. And who wants to play in 100 degrees in July preseason to win three games? <laughs> Couldn't be me. Definitely wouldn't be me. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how he does there. Um, it will probably take a little bit of time, although Manny Diaz, in his, uh, he released a statement on Twitter, one kind of condemning Miami a little bit for how poorly the situation was handled, which I don't blame him. Yeah, justifiably so. <laughs> Justifiably so, absolutely. Um, but he was also talking about how he really thought that his team was was about to make some strides and, and was in for a breakout year next year that he's kind of disappointed he won't get to go through that. Um, we'll see if he's right and then see if the t- if there's kind of something there for uh, Chris Ball to work with. But they might get themselves up quickly. Might take them a few years. I, I think that Chris Ball can at least get to be more competitive than he has ever had them. I would think. So, like we said at the very beginning of this podcast, it was going to be a very, very hot and heavy uh, college football podcast. It's just a ridiculous amount of stuff to to break down. But the uh, the bowl schedule was released out yesterday. There's some fun bowl matchups, I think, this year, Um, as as there always is. There's some that are going to be maybe not so much fun. Um, I'm looking at you, Iowa, Kentucky. That's. That's not going to be a, a very easy one on the eyes to, to watch in the Citrus Bowl. Um, but seeing a game like Texas Tech and uh, Mississippi State is going to be fun. Seeing a game of Utah and Ohio State, I think, will be a fun one. Uh, Notre Dame-Oklahoma State. I'm looking Notre Dame-Oklahoma State will be a great game. Matched. Yeah. Baylor and Ole Miss will be a really interesting game. A high-power offense versus a very good defense. So, there will be a lot of really good games. And I think that if you look around, there's what's going to be, I think the best part about it is there's not too many teams, I would say, that are, quote, disappointed with their finish. Like there's no team other than maybe Oklahoma State who lost their way out of the playoff. And so you have a lot of teams that kind of expected to be in a bowl game and they're in a bowl game. And I think they will show up and care about said bowl game. Yeah. Because last year that was like a cancer because, um, Florida didn't play anybody. Georgia didn't play anybody and then proceeds to, you know, make an excuse about it, which I, I think I went on a big enough rant last year about that. You know, <laughs> try to get back up. But I, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you said. It didn't feel like any team was like, okay, you know, we're, we're above it yeah. this season. It didn't look that way. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be a couple guys that sit out like there is every year, but I think the vast majority of teams are going to have, enough of their roster to to show what they're capable of 
Yeah, I mean, there always will be, especially the top guys that maybe were already banged up. And, and there's times that I understand it, um, especially when you start to look at like lower teams and stuff. But I think when you get to kind of some of those New Year's Six Bowls, it's really fun when you get to see what those teams are made of. And, um, so it'll be a lot of really good experiences for a lot of teams, a lot of fun bowl games. But clearly we won't have to, to dive too deep into college football talk going up the next couple of weeks after being very heavy. The last few weeks, you know, hopefully going forward, we'll have a lot more NFL talk as we preview the NFL playoff picture coming up. Now that we get past Thanksgiving, it really feels like that season goes into full, full blown mode of, of every week really, really matters more than before. You start finding out who's playing the best. And then on the flip side, you've got uh, not much happening in MLB because there's a lockout now. So you've got, yes. like, yeah, to, to Short and sweet answer is that there's a labor shortage. The seat collective bargaining agreement was not agreed upon before the deadline came up. So players cannot work out at club facilities. They uh, cannot be traded. They cannot be signed. Teams cannot talk with each other about trades. Um, MLB can't use the players when trying to preview for next season. So if you have any ads, if they're putting any ads out there, you'll notice Everything will be former players. Nobody will be a current player. It's just little intricacies like that. It's it's absolute crap. It, I won't go into it on this podcast, but it's just that we've resulted into this. So it's childish. Bureaucracy. Childish. That's the best way I'm for it. <laughs> Outside of that, this this was uh, this was a fun one. It's been a Hell of a college football year. Now we got silly season, bowl season, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was a really fun one, though. So we'll we'll track it as as results happen and go through. But otherwise, we'll let everybody go on their way. I don't know about you, Joe. I'm really looking forward to Monday Night Football tonight. It's going to be a hysterical game, I think, watching this weather conditions in Buffalo, 40 to 50 miles an hour in, in snow. So, so great for Buffalo. So great. And it's a huge game. Oh yeah, you got Incredible the AFC. Important. I mean, this game is huge for the AFC East. So, yeah. just massive stakes in Buffalo. Uh, this should be the weather when these two teams play every single time. Yep. And apparently, Mac Jones has never seen snow, and he'll see plenty of it tonight. <laughs> I, I don't know what's going to be worse. This, the wind will uh, the wind will definitely be worse. But trying to play in the snow and that wind, oh boy, this is going to be a fun one. Probably yeah. a lot of points, but probably some pretty funny moments. Hope everyone enjoys that game tonight. And then uh, we will be back at you next week with our uh, regularly scheduled uh, program. So appreciate everyone and uh, have a good week. 